I think a lot of candidates feel frustrated by the fact that companies are not being open with them. It's one thing to be rejected from a job. It's another thing to be rejected out of the blue. You're almost blindsided, right? So every candidate I talk to will tell me the thing that stands out now is the company that just acts like a regular entity that treats humans well, which is basically saying, hey, it's been two weeks since your interview. We don't have an update yet, but I'm emailing you to update you that we don't have an update. And the person's like, cool, I appreciate that. Like, thank you. There's a revolution taking place right now. Talent and intelligence are equally distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not. The talent economy, the idea that at the center of work is the talent, is the individual. The way we work has changed forever. And highly skilled talent is demanding flexibility around the way they work and the way they live. This podcast brings together thought leaders, staffing experts, and top talent to talk about the evolving nature of work and how companies can navigate these changes to remain competitive, drive innovation, and ensure success. Welcome to the Talent Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bodgis, lead editor of thought leadership at TopTal. My guest today is Austin Belsack. While working at Microsoft, Austin founded Cultivated Culture, which teaches people how to use unconventional strategies to land jobs they love. Austin's work has been featured in Forbes, Business Insider, Inc., Fast Company, and more. Thanks for being here, Austin. Meredith, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So I want to start off by digging into your unique career path. From in-debt college grad putting 1,500 miles on his car each week looking for work to helping thousands of people land their dream jobs. Walk me through how your company, Cultivated Culture, was founded. Yeah, so it really stemmed from my my personal experience as a job seeker. There are a lot of career coaches out there and a lot of folks who share advice on recruitment and, and the process. And many of them come from the hiring side of things, right? They were a recruiter or they worked in HR or whatever it is. And my background's a little bit different. I come at this from the perspective of being a job seeker myself. Through my college career, I essentially coasted, didn't apply to a single job. I didn't interview at a single company in a very true form of nepotism. I had an internship kind of dropped in my lap from my roommate's dad, which is a a very privileged thing to have happened. And I just said, yeah, they offered me the job. I said, I'll work here. That's sort of when life kind of slapped me in the face a little bit. So I graduate from college. I have a 2.58 GPA, which is equivalent to like a C minus. I have a degree in biology and I have this job in medical device sales. So I didn't think about anything like cost of living or anything else that, that we need to consider when accepting a job and going into the real world. So I started this job and the job itself is, is not great. It's not really aligned with what I had expected. Getting up at 3.30 in the morning and driving a couple hours, 1,500 miles a week on the car to get to these hospitals by 6 a.m., And then my boss is telling me, you know, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You don't have a future here. You should do something else. And then on top of that, there was a ton of financial stress because while I was lucky enough to not graduate with student debt, I was only getting paid around 35,000 bucks a year. And so I quickly racked up $15,000 of credit card debt, just trying to make ends meet, paying off my car and my insurance and stuff like that. So this was a really, really bad place to be. And I knew I had to get out. So when I made that decision, I went to the same people that we always go to for advice. We go to our parents and we go to our friends and career counselors and all all these other people. 
And they all told me the same thing. You got to tweak your resume, tweak your cover letter. And then here are these online job boards, you know, find a job and apply for it. I said, great, I can do that. And that's exactly what I did for the first month. I applied to roughly 100 jobs or so in the first 30 days. I didn't hear anything back. Not very surprisingly in hindsight, but I was confused because I thought, you know, I'd at least get some sort of bite. You know, why did I pay all this money for college? So I realized that I needed to find a better way to do this. Basically, what I realized through some conversations was that I needed to find people who had made it to where I wanted to go, and they did it from a similar background. So I really focused on connecting with people at my dream companies, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, and I tried to find people who came from non-traditional backgrounds. And I essentially talked to as many of those folks as I could. I looked for common threads. I looked for strategies I could cherry pick. And basically, it came down to two things. You know, All those people had gotten a referral at their job. None of them had really applied online. And the second was that they all found some creative way to add their value. So I took that to heart and I spent the next year and a half essentially testing and building strategies based on those two core principles. And I eventually landed on a system that effectively allowed me to pick and choose where I landed interviews. So I ended up interviewing at Google, Microsoft, and Twitter. I had a couple of offers from a couple of those companies. I ended up accepting the Microsoft offer. And then a lot of people came out of the woodwork and asked me how I did it. So that's really where Cultivated Culture was born. So now you're helping job seekers land roles at Fortune 500 companies by helping them do what you did, tell their stories in a compelling manner. How should companies better tell their stories in an effort to recruit top talent? There's really two pieces here when I talk to job seekers. If you want the best talent, first and foremost, there needs to be some more transparency. What I hear from a lot of job seekers is that they're frustrated by a lack of basically two-way communication in the search. So they submit an application and they have no idea where it goes or if anybody's looked at it or what the status is. In some cases, they'll receive an automated rejection email and they're not sure why they got it or what they could have done differently, or maybe they feel like they haven't been able to truly share their value. Or they get into the interview rounds and all of a sudden they stop hearing back from the company or they don't know, you know, it was supposed to be two weeks until they heard, but now it's week four and what's going on. And so I think a lot of candidates feel frustrated by the fact that companies are not being open with them about where they are in the process and what's happening and setting, you know, timelines and and sticking with them. And it's one thing to be rejected from a job. It's another thing to be rejected sort of out of the blue. You're almost blindsided, right? So every candidate I talk to will tell me like the thing that stands out now is the company that just acts like a regular entity that treats humans well, which is basically saying, hey, it's been two weeks since your interview. We don't have an update yet, but I'm emailing you to update you that we don't have an update. And the person's like, cool, I appreciate that. Like, thank you. So that's the the first thing. And then the second thing I would say is, I think the people who are really their top talent and they're searching for awesome companies, these awesome companies are stepping outside of what I would consider to be like the corporate persona and being a little bit more human. And this is happening on multiple levels. So one, their leaders, they have their own brands. So they're getting out there and they're in the public eye speaking about different things and not just here's this new product that we launched, but oh, hey, it seems like there is this movement happening in America around whatever it is. It could be 
political or it could be human rights or it could be this issue or that issue or whatever it is. And they're coming out and they're taking a stance on it and they're speaking about it. A very non-controversial choice might be, you know, COVID. So what's happening with COVID? Well, people's mental health is really suffering during the pandemic and it's been really hard for people to maintain their output. And we've seen companies basically come out and not publicly say, but through their actions and through the news and the headlines, we see them basically saying, I don't care. You just need to keep working and you need to work harder. And like, we need more profits for our shareholders. And then there are companies that come out and say, hey, this is this is not good. And here's what we're doing about it. You know, we've given our employees an extra X number of vacation days, or, you know, we've created a mandatory take an hour a day to just like go into this Zoom room if you want, or take to yourself and, and meditate or read or take it, take a break. And that kind of stuff really shows through and companies understand and empathize with what not just their employees, but what their customers are going through. I think that really shines through to talent because people want to be at companies that value them, especially if they're top performers and they have options. I really appreciate that you brought up an example that isn't controversial. It's not controversial to talk about taking care of your employees and caring about your customers, because I think there is this hesitancy to wade into political territories, even though we're seeing it more and more. So thank you for that example. That's really good advice for our audience. Take a stance on something that everybody cares about and just be vocal about it. So tell me more about what you would like to see companies do on social media. More of what I just mentioned. And if you just look at the companies that do this really well, Wendy's Twitter, Netflix's Twitter, right? These companies, they're in the news and they're being shared far and wide because they're creating a a humanized experience. They're making memes or they're making jokes or they're taking a stance on some of these issues and they're aligning themselves with what I imagine what their consumers are are looking for. And obviously there are some companies that are going to take stances that you disagree with, but that's probably a good thing in the end because knowing that upfront, one that's going to help the company attract more talent that aligns with them, but it's also going to help talent understand what companies they should be targeting. And so regardless of what the company's stance is, regardless of if it's liberal or conservative, or if it's this side or that side, showing your customers and and your potential employees and your current employees like, hey, this is what we stand for and this is what we're doing about it. That's really what needs to be happening. And so how does that happen? Well, one, having a team that creates that sort of content is huge and having them keyed into events that that are happening, that are impacting everybody, that's just a prerequisite, right? But then on top of that, when leaders are, are more transparent and they create space for, for people to engage with them, that also tends to play really, really well. And so whether it's the CEO or a VP or you know whoever it is, if there are forums or if there are areas where the company is clearly taking an interest in collecting feedback and hearing from their followers, their audience, their customers and potential candidates, that tends to play really, really well too. So the companies that are doing this, the companies that are hosting lives, the companies that are creating these spaces and the companies that are actively making a priority of you know, sharing their stances and, and also taking on extracurriculars. What are companies risking if they don't tell their story in an effective manner? If they don't share what they care about to their audiences, what are they missing out on? There's a massive risk here, and it really depends on how you do business. So as a CEO of my own business, which is much smaller than many of the ones that that we're talking about here, I have to consider who I'm speaking to and, and you know the type of people that I want. And so I'm not out here. I don't want 
100 million followers where 99.99999% of them don't really care about what I'm talking about. Like the number is just a number at that point. I'm much more interested in having 100 people who really buy into what I'm doing. And so the same goes for any of these companies. So if you're just out here, if you're looking to get people in your pipeline for the sake of getting people in your pipeline, or if you're looking to get larger audience, whether it's you know website traffic or social media or, or an email list or anything else, or if you're looking for more candidates, none of that stuff really matters if the people that you're attracting are not aligned with you, right? And vice versa. So I think what really needs to happen is companies need to get clear on who, who are we trying to speak to here? What do these people care about? And also, what do, what do we care about? And how can we align on that? So I think the risk that you're taking on is essentially spending a lot of time and energy and, and investment in something that's attracting people who not, aren't necessarily aligned to you. Let's say you have somebody who is on paper, quote, top talent but they have different views than, than your company does or your team does. But that due diligence hasn't been done. That realization hasn't happened. Well, that person's going to come on board and what's going to happen? They're going to realize that there's a misalignment. And so that's going to be a frustrating person for you to manage. That person's not going to be as productive. They're not going to bring as much to the table for the company. And they're probably going to be you know, headed on another job search shortly, right? So if you put this out there up front, yes, you may attract fewer people, but the quality of those people uh, should be higher and you should have confidence that those people are aligned with what you are trying to do. And they're going to be excited to come to work because that alignment is there. companies tell whether an applicant is aligned with their values and what they're trying to accomplish? Are resumes and cover letters still the best way to vet talent? I I definitely don't think so. I think cover letters and resumes, nobody reads cover letters. That's what the data is telling us, although companies do prefer applicants that have them. I think one of the best things that companies can do is, is be very clear about that. And so we've already talked about a couple of ways to do that, you know, sharing on on social and on their website. But I think incorporating that into uh, the application or the interview process as well, just candidly saying, hey, you know, something that we really value here is collaboration and making sure everybody has an equal seat at the table. Can you tell me about a time that that you were involved in a project or an instance where somebody was not given an equal seat and what you did about it? Or just opening up the floor and saying, hey, this is our value. I think it's really on the companies to say, hey, here's who we are. And this is what's important to us. And this is the way that we do business. And this is what you can expect if you show up every single day. And then candidates are going to have a very clear picture of whether or not that aligns with them or not. You know, even if they haven't done that self-reflection, there's usually a gut feeling where if somebody says, hey, this is our culture, we work Saturdays and Sundays and 14 hour days, you know, you're probably going to say, hmm, maybe that's not for me. Yeah. Or maybe that is, you know, maybe that you're getting paid equally to the, the work that you're doing. And that's your choice as a candidate. But at least, you know, up front because the company has been clear about it. So we haven't moved away from resumes and cover letters yet, but I am wondering, has COVID-19 changed anything about the ways companies recruit and hire new employees? Yeah, I definitely think that it has. I I think we've seen a big rise on the virtual platforms and and the web. So I'm seeing more companies place more emphasis on candidates' online presences. I think that's an awesome thing. Unfortunately, candidates are not always necessarily taking advantage of that or, or really factoring that into their search. But what's happened is... Over the last 12 months, you know, we obviously saw massive, massive unemployment numbers and all of those people are going to the most obvious channel, right? I need a job. 
how do I do that? Tweak my resume, send it into an online portal, right? So the competition has only gotten higher. And, and even before COVID, we saw one in three Americans looking for work. 75% of those Americans were using online apps as their primary method to get in the door. There are definitely more people putting in online applications. And I think it's just so hard for companies. All these resumes, they look the same. They look the same aesthetically. The content is the same. They use the same jargon. And so when you have 100 people saying, I'm responsible for managing a highly talented team and I'm a results-oriented professional, what does that mean? Like, you're not telling me anything. Your results orientation could lead to zero results or you could be, you know, the number one salesperson on the planet. But I just have no idea from what you're telling me in this resume. And so I think companies are looking for other ways to assess candidate value. And so they're looking to see, you know, hey, what's this person doing outside of a resume? Do they have personal website? Do they have a portfolio? Are they creating content? Have they written articles? Are they going on podcasts? And the folks who are, it's scary. It's outside of a lot of our comfort zones, but the folks who are are the ones who are getting picked out of the pile because their value is just so much more clear than trying to, you know, sift through hundreds of resumes and, and make the decision that way. So besides candidates putting themselves out there more on social media, through podcasts, are there other things that companies now care about more in a potential new hire than they did before the pandemic? It comes back to candidates who are, are finding ways to go above and beyond. The candidates who are just coming to the table and relying on traditional qualifications, that's becoming more and more the norm. And so these candidates have to find different ways to separate themselves. And that's why we see the personality tester. That's why we see the one-way interviews or some other consulting firm has their proprietary method for identifying the best talent. And companies are just hungry to find a way to make it easier to separate the wheat from the chaff because through the, the online application process that, that companies created, they've sort of created their own monster, right? I think that Originally, it was a great idea because now all of a sudden we can source candidates from everywhere. But with so many people on the Internet, it becomes, you know, an overwhelming flood and it's hard to differentiate. So, yeah, I think what they're looking for are people who are finding different ways to go above and beyond. Not everybody's going to go on a podcast, but when I was at Microsoft, we interviewed somebody who was a guest lecturer at NYU for analytics. And so that was something that they did. You know, volunteering is another thing that that can stand out or even just honestly having a personality. It sounds kind of crazy, but you look at a resume and you see all this business stuff. But we just talked about how important culture is. And so the person who shows up and has a, a little bit more about them, you know, hey, I'm, I run marathons and I'm training for the New York Marathon. And I also, you know, I brew my own beer at home and I'm currently reading this book that shares a little bit more about who they are. And you can get a better sense right off the bat of, you know, does this person align or not? But on the company side, the job seekers can very easily point to a company and say, your process is broken. This is awful. But I think it's also fair to point to job seekers and say, well, hey, you're doing the exact same thing that the other next hundred people who applied are doing. So I think there needs to be some changes and some give and take on both sides. You brought up the one-way interview, and I know I'm seeing more companies do that with the AI tools that are out there. What do you think of the one-way interview as a first level of vetting candidates? I actually would be excited about it as a job seeker. I think one-way interviews give us the chance to take more control of the narrative. You know, if the question is, tell me about yourself, you can say whatever you want. That is an open-ended opportunity for you to share your message. And any of these questions, it's an opportunity for you to really 
talk about why you're the best candidate. And it's so much easier to explain it in an answer than it is to do that in a resume or a cover letter. So I am a fan of them, but I also understand why job seekers don't love them. And one reason I think is valid and one isn't. So the, the reason that is valid is that you want to feel like you're being respected, right? And your time is respected. And so as a candidate, you spend all this time applying and, and doing all this stuff. And then to just be like shown to a computer screen with no human on the other end, I understand why that's disappointing. And, and I totally get that. I think the reason that's not so valid is candidates are upset that they only have one take sometimes. And, you know, they're not really sure how the platform works or what's going on. But I think that for me, that is just a matter of preparation. If you need to know your answer for a single take, that's on you to kind of get your answers down. And if you're preparing for interviews effectively, that shouldn't be as large of an issue. So I do understand some of the frustration on the respect side, but I also think that it's a great opportunity for people to solve that issue that they're feeling of, you know, hey, my value is not being recognized on my resume. So we at TopTal are very pro-remote work, but we are seeing that there are some companies that really do want butts in chairs, so to speak, especially as we are getting into the second half of 2021. How does a potential return to work plan impact the talent pool going forward this year? There are companies that are going to embrace more of the remote options and there are companies that have gone fully remote. But to your point, Meredith, there are companies that are going to want their people back in the office. And so what happens then? Well, it is what it is. It's like it's self-explanatory. You got to be able to get to the office from nine to five. So in terms of the talent pool, we will see a little bit of a reduction in terms of the number of postings that are open to everybody. And that actually should help some people in the sense that, you know, if a job is posted in New York City and somebody lives in California and they're not willing to relocate, they might have applied for that role over the course of the past 12 months in hopes that role would be fully remote or they could negotiate it or whatever. I think we're not going to see those people apply anymore because they weren't willing to relocate in the first place. I do also think that we'll see more remote roles out there. So that person may not have to settle for not applying for that role. They can find another one that that fits with the lifestyle that they're looking for. So I think overall, it's a step in the right direction for everybody. I think people will be more productive when they do have a place to go back to, and it's but it's not five days a week. It's really their choice. So as more companies do move toward remote or at least hybrid workforces, and the focus becomes on sustaining a workplace culture... How do you think that changes how important strong candidate referrals become in recruiting? Referrals were already, you know, the name of the game, right? And I think that's only going to increase now when especially you have to have that trust in somebody who's working remotely and you need to be confident that, you know, this person is is getting their their job done. They're doing it effectively. They have the resources that they need. I think that's that's so critical. And so one of the easiest ways to check that box. Because at the end of the day, it's really hard to know until somebody comes in the door. So you, you can do what you can do ahead of time. But the easiest way to kind of check that box or one of the bigger boxes you can check is, is this person trusted by somebody that I already have faith in? Is a top performer on my team referring somebody that they consider to be a top performer? If so, amazing. You know, I, I'm going to have a lot more confidence in that person than somebody who came in through a cold application and we're still kind of up in the air about their ability. I think referrals are, are so critical to the hybrid model. And what impact do referrals have on retention and performance? 
a massive impact. I mean, at the end of the day, we spend 40 hours plus a week with the people that that we're working with, right? Everybody talks about you, you don't leave your job, you leave your manager or your team. And, and that is really true, right? I know people who work at, quote, amazing companies, you know, the best companies to work for, but they work for an awful team or an awful manager. They don't jive with anybody. Whereas, you know, I know people who work for companies that nobody's ever heard of, and they're like happy as a clam because they work with amazing people and have an amazing manager. And so referrals are just an easy way to make that happen, right? If this person is trusted by somebody on the team who's already well-liked, whose opinion is also trusted, that makes for a higher, higher chance that this new person comes in and gels with everybody else. All the metrics that companies look for in terms of, you know, how long people stay, how productive they are, so on and so forth. Referrals constantly beat out every other channel. And that's why companies are willing to pay, you know, a couple thousand bucks for a referral because they know that they're going to make that back easily. And one of the things that you do so well with Cultivated Culture is help people navigate changing careers, changing the, the industry they work in or changing their field entirely. How should hiring managers and recruiters accurately evaluate those applicants who don't typically have the exact experience that the hiring managers are seeking? So I think one of the easiest things that hiring managers can do is put together some sort of quick assessment. I think there's so many candidates who come from non-traditional backgrounds who could arguably be the best candidate in the pool, but they're just overlooked because they don't check the traditional boxes. It's in the company's best interest to try and and identify some of those candidates, and it's not going to happen through the traditional process. So taking a couple extra hours to put together some sort of assessment, and this isn't always going to be possible for every role out there. But by and large, I think there should be a pretty easy way to put together a set of questions or a set of actions that all of your candidates can take and can show you, hey, this person knows what they're talking about. And it's not Googleable. It's not, you know, something that if it gets posted, you're going to switch it up for the next role. But I think just doing that, and if you can delegate that to somebody on your team, or you get the whole team's input, which would be even better. I think that's such an easy way to understand people's true value versus trying to play, you know, a guessing game with somebody's resume or cover letter. What kinds of assessments produce the most revealing information? That's a great question. I believe that it's an assessment that does a couple of things that we mentioned. It's short enough so candidates don't feel like, because the presentations are tough, right? A lot of companies ask for presentations and now more and more these presentations are becoming, I think a, a little bit, they're not quite fair to the candidate. You know, it says spend four hours on this, but if another candidate's going to spend 16 and, then, and you spend four, it doesn't matter what the company said, the 16 hour presentation is probably going to be better or of a higher quality. So those are are tough. But an assessment where there are a couple of very clear steps, they may not necessarily be easy in the sense that the best way to put it is that they should be easy for the person who has the knowledge. So if you don't have the knowledge, it's not going to be easy for you to go read that book and then figure out how to implement it and apply and do all this stuff. But for somebody who has the experience you're looking for, that should be a relatively quick answer or a relatively quick solution that they provide. So if you can do that, and you can do it in something in the form of, of something that doesn't take, you know, more than an hour or two hours or whatever it is. I think that's really where you're going to find the magic. But it does need to focus on them sort of taking an action or describing, you know, a strategy or a solution or whatever it is. And then I think that key piece is it should be easy for the folks who have the experience. How can companies evaluate those people and tell that those folks with non-traditional work experiences can be the best person for the job? Yeah. So I think at a certain point here, you do need to have the knowledge. 
I could have the potential to be the best software engineer in the world if I took the courses and put in the hours, but I haven't taken the courses and I haven't put in the hours and I have no software engineering experience. So I don't think it's fair for me to go to a company and expect them to quote, see my potential, right? I think we need, as candidates, we need to show some investment on our end. And I think we also need to have at least a baseline of specific knowledge because at the end of the day, you know, it's a, it's a business transaction. And so I'm not going to pay somebody whatever the salary is when they don't have the skills that I need to get done. I think that there is that baseline expectation. But for job seekers who have been putting in the work, the biggest thing that I would say is you can't stop at just getting the knowledge you have to show the companies what you're capable of doing with that knowledge. And so there's two great ways to really make this happen. One is to find real world applications. So for me, when I was transitioning from healthcare to digital marketing, I taught myself, you know, how to use all the digital marketing tools. And then I went out and freelanced. So I basically freelanced my services and I got real world results from my own work. And so I took that knowledge and I I had results to back it up. I wasn't just saying, hey, I took these courses. The other thing that you can do is create a portfolio, right? So I know a lot of people, for example, I was talking to somebody who wants to be a UX designer and they're coming from a a non-traditional background. And so what they've done is they've created a a portfolio where they've, they've picked their target companies and they've identified an area where they could improve their UX. And they've basically, they're blogging their thought process and research process and potential solutions. And so now they have a body of work that they can point to to say, hey, if you're curious For this person, especially, they pick their target companies so they can say, for you specifically, here you go. But even if they went to a company that wasn't on that list, they can say, here's a body of work that you can look at. You know, this is what I bring to the table. Here's me taking that knowledge and putting it into action. And that's really what's going to get companies to buy into you. So as the rise of remote work impacts us all, what types of skills should companies view as essential that they might not have thought about before? I really think that the biggest trait or skill or characteristic that you can look for in an employee is somebody who's, they have an action bias and they're willing to roll up their sleeves and get out there and start working on the things that they're passionate about. So I talk a lot about side hustles because that's how my business started. And that's how a lot of people are, are thinking about them. And I get the question, you know, should you include them on your resume? Do companies like them or not like them? And it does depend on the company. But for me at Microsoft, I always looked in for anybody interviewing, I always looked to see if they had some sort of project outside of work. And it didn't have to be a business, right? It could have been a passion project or it could have been volunteering or it could have been something else along those lines. But if somebody was passionate about something outside of their nine to five job and they were willing to invest in it, that's the type of person that I want on my team because I know when that person finds something that they're passionate about that is work-related, they're going to go find a way to work on it. They're going to go find a way to make it happen. And that really benefits everybody across the board. So I have one last question for you and it's a doozy, but it's an important (laughs) one. What is the most broken thing about the traditional job-seeking process? And what is the number one thing that hiring managers can do to improve it? I think we covered it in reliance on resumes and cover letters, 100%. The documents themselves are not great marketing materials. I think the answer to that is finding more creative ways to assess your candidates and, and to start looking at different aspects. So is the assessment something that your team can do? 
can you look at your top performers and, and survey them and, and see if there are any traits or characteristics that all of those people have in common? And then can you find a way to quantify them or measure them, whether it's through an, a question on your online application that's outside of the resume or whether it's part of the interview process? One thing we haven't talked about is how inequitable the traditional process is. And there's literally you know studies out there that show that Candidates who whiten their resumes, basically, you know, take their names and make them sound more white, get more callbacks. That's a whole different ballgame. But finding ways to make it more equitable and also make candidates, make it more of a meritocracy. You know, the person who's the best fit is, is the one who's hired in most cases. And I think the only way you can do that is by assessing people based on their talents for the role, not based on buzzwords in a resume or the specific ways that they've outlined their, their past experience. Make it more equitable. Consider using assessments. Be open to pitch decks from non-traditional candidates. These are all really important tips and we appreciate you sharing them with us. Thank you so much for being a guest on The Talent Economy. Thanks for having me, Meredith. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Talent Economy. I'm your host, Meredith Bodkiss. You can find much more information about the talent economy on staffing.com and toptal.com slash insights, hubs for bold, comprehensive content featuring business thought leaders and authoritative research focused on the future of work.